0: This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late
1: night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun
0: excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers.
1: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check.
0: From the viceroy to the young clerk who at home consumes high tea at sunset, every Englishman in India solemnly dresses for dinner. It's as though the integrity of the British Empire depended in some directly magical way upon the donning of black jackets and hard-boiled shirts, solitary men in dak bungalows, on coasting steamers and little shanties among tiger-infested woods, obey the mystical imperative every evening of putting on the funereal uniform of English prestige. Almost more amazing is the other great convention of keeping up European prestige, the convention of eating too much. Five meals a day, two breakfasts, luncheon, afternoon tea and dinner are standard throughout India. A sixth is often added in the big towns where there are theatres and dances to justify late supper. The Indian, who eats at most two meals a day, sometimes only one, too often none, is compelled to acknowledge his inferiority. Perhaps the Indians can only be impressed by our gastronomic prowess. Our prestige is bound up with overeating. For the sake of empire, the truly patriotic tourist will sacrifice his liver and his colon, will pave the way for future apoplexies and cancers of the intestine. I did my best while I was in India, but at the risk of undermining our prestige, of bringing the whole imperial fabric in ruins about my ears, I used, from time to time, unobtrusively, To skip, of course, the spirit is willing, but the flesh, alas, is weak.
2: That's wonderful. Who said that?
0: Aldous Huxley, one of my favourite travel diaries of all time. Little known and now out of print, but it's called Jesting Pilot, their Diary of a Journey. And it's published in about 1924, and it has some of the best descriptions of the Raj that I know.
2: Well, hello, and welcome to Empire, with me, Anita Arnon.
0: And me, William Drumpel, looking forward to yet another episode on overeating.
2: This is quite difficult, isn't it? Because I'm really hungry now. It's getting getting to lunchtime here and dinner time for you. On Tuesday, we were talking about the relationship between Britain and India via food in the 1600s and 1700s. And we're going to carry that through today, through the 1800s and 1900s. It has been a podcast of plenty, shall we say, because we did bang on a lot about just how much was on the table, didn't we? I mean, the, the amounts that were consumed were astronomical.
0: But what was, I thought, most interesting about that was how in the early period, Indians and British are actually eating quite similar food. The food of Tudor England is quite similar to the food of early Mughal India. And what we're going to see in this episode as we head into the late 19th and 20th century is that similarity diverging. And that's true of many aspects of life. I mean, we often forget that in the 18th century, one in three Brits in India was married to an Indian woman or cohabiting with an Indian woman, or leaving their goods in their wills to an Anglo-Indian child. And there was this moment when the two worlds came very closely together. And then that got kicked out as English racism and superiority and power all increased. And you have this beginning of the more familiar sort of Kipling-esque world, where east is east and west is west, and never the twain shall meet. And that happens in food, too.
2: Absolutely. You sort of hear people recognising that even, and it being a deliberate effort to have a divergence in the writings of, say, look, Colonel Kenny Herbert, who is an Anglo-Indian cookery writer who was writing in 1878. So he recognises that before there was a one track to gastronomic problems <laughs> that both <laughs> followed. But then there is a divergence. I'll just read you a little snippet from, from his writing. And he says, our dinners today, and, and you know, bear in mind he's writing in 1878, our, our dinners today would indeed astonish our Anglo-Indian forefathers with a taste for light wines and a far more moderate indulgence in stimulating drinks has been germinated a desire for delicate An artistic cookery. Quality has superseded quantity and the molten curries and florid oriental compositions of the olden times so fearfully and wonderfully made have been gradually banished from our dinner tables for although a well-considered curry or mulligatawny, capital things in their way, are still very frequently given at breakfast or lunch and they no longer occupy a position in the dinner menu of establishments conducted according to the new regime. Men of moderate means have become hypercritical in the matter of their food and demand a class of cooking which was not even a Attempted in the houses of the richest some 20 years ago, dinners of 16 or 20, thoughtfully composed are de rigueur, our menu cards, discourse of dainty fare in its French. And that is really important because the French influence has now made an appearance. And that isn't it by and large thanks to the Suez Canal. Tell us a little more about that, William.
0: That's right. In 1869, you have the Suez Canal opening. And this means that goods and ideas travel far more quickly from Europe to India than they had previously. And one of these things, as you're saying, is the Victorian fondness for French food. So where before you had actually quite an Indianized luncheon and dinner table in the Raj, from this period, from the 1860s and 1870s, you begin to get an increasing Europeanization. You see this not only among the British in India, but those living in their circles. For example, at menus in the royal palaces in the Maharaja of Jobpur and Jaipur and the Wabs of Hyderabad, all the menus are suddenly in French. And the imported French wines, which never do well in India because people haven't got the refrigeration to keep them at a stable temperature and so on. And bizarrely, living in a country with some of the greatest culinary traditions anywhere in the world, the Brits decide to try and pretend they're in Europe and eat completely inappropriate
2: food. What they're asking for for, and I've I've sort of seen some of the more modern menus gracing the tables of the Raj. They're, they're really, as you say, into the French side of things. So, consumés and things, you know, things that are lighter and easily digestible. But they do have an Indian tinge to them, and they are actually rooted in Indian cooking because they have a slight flavouring that is would be alien to a purely British palate. Because rasam is a clear broth that is made in Indian kitchens and has been since time immemorial.
0: And that is an example of, of something that uses a lot of pepper as opposed to chilli, isn't it, Arasim?
2: Indeed. And it's not hot as in it'll burn your tongue, but it's a, a hot soup that is much easier to digest. And there's also, you know, from the French, there's also this weird habit of presenting food that doesn't look like what it actually is. So, you know, you will have a chicken, you'll beat it and smush it to within an inch of its life and turn it into something that looks like, I don't know, a pig or a cow or a, you know, a cart or something. So it is all sort of presentationally led in this period of the 1800s, thanks to that French influence. And
0: I think what you're finding at this period, behind all this, is the fact that in the early period, as we said, one in three Brits is married to an Indian woman, and so living at home, whatever they're doing in their office, or in the Governor General's palace, whatever it is, at home, these guys are often sitting on the floor, often wearing pyjamas, often smoking hookahs, Eating with their hands. Eating with their hands, and eating what their wives or girlfriends are eating. And you see the reverse happening in the photographs. You see that the Indian wives are sitting on European chairs or using knives and forks and using European crockery. So as with any mixed marriage today, both sides make room for the other's habits. But by the 1830s, marriages with Indian women begin to die out. And what you get instead is the fishing fleet. And you suddenly have these British women coming out. This is such a sort of time banned thing that if you failed to find a husband in your first two seasons coming out on the social scene in England you went out to India where the theory went there would be lots of single men sitting in Dak bungalows in their dinner jackets in the jungle waiting for you to snap them up and in many cases this happened but even there you failed to snag a husband, you got sent back and the poor girls who went back at the end of two seasons of dancing around the cantonments and palaces of India were Described as returned empties.
2: Oh, my Lord. God, people are bad. They are rude. Do you know, just on the odds being good, if you haven't found a husband in Britain, but there are more men than women in India, I'm minded of something someone told me about being a girl engineer going to Imperial College in the 1990s. There weren't many of them. And uh, a friend asked her, I said, Oh, God, there's so many blokes there. You must have found a boyfriend by now. And she said, Well, the odds are good, but the goods are odd. Brilliant. I think sort of the fishing fleet must be a little bit of a similar situation.
0: So what you're having is when you have now the rise of the Memsab, if you like, you have this whole world whereby you have a very anglicised social life and India is excluded not just from the cooking table, but from all other aspects of your social life. And suddenly now you've got cricket clubs and tennis clubs.
2: Badminton. Badminton meals. I mean, things that are based around actual activities.
0: And clubs in general. And you also have the production of books like this, which I'm holding in my hand, The Complete Indian Housekeeper and Cook by Flora Annie Steele. And it's a thick volume. Even In the modern edition, it's 317 pages, and it deals with the duties of the servants, hints on breakfasts and dinners, hints on poultry, hints on management of young children. Hints on outfits, in the plains, on the hills. So this is now the high raj. You have a virtual apartheid. The two races are kept completely apart. And the same is true of the food.
2: And, you know, you you talked about sort of the 1838, but this completely becomes crystallized after the Indian Mutiny or the Indian Uprising of 1857, when really, you know, this this going home to your Indian girlfriend, stroke wife, stroke mixed race children was completely frowned upon. And there has to be a difference, a space between the two. Towards the 1900s, even if you had sort of leftover Maharajas who hadn't been swallowed up by Dalhousie, the governor general, they would have to prepare food for their banquets to the British taste. It would be no longer okay for them to bring out the very finest of their chefs who would prepare the very finest dishes in their kingdom. They would have to try and Anglo them up a little bit. So sandwiches suddenly start appearing and sort of little cakes and dainties that have come straight from that French influence. I remember there was an account when I was writing Sophia. They go to one of these great parda parties for, you know, they have to throw one party parties for all the great women of the, the Raj, Sophia and her sister do. And they're terribly fretful about getting sort of the bakery to sort out the kind of food that would be acceptable to both sides. It is a hierarchy of cuisine, a hierarchy of taste that goes on. Even then though, even though that's happening, even though you've got that separation, you still have sort of maharajas who are trying to impress. So there was one story I remember writing for Patient Assassin, which is when Sir Michael O'Dwyer, who's the governor general of Punjab, he counts it as a great issue of pride that he has never eaten Indian food that he doesn't like it and he won't eat it the whole time the whole time he's there and he writes this thing in in his diary I mean really and he's in Punjab we do good cooking Very good cooking in Punjab.
0: Best Rajma in the country.
2: Thank you. Red beans, my favorite dish, actually. But he sort of writes about being invited to a Maharaja's dinner, where the Maharaja has paid him the ultimate compliment of cooking dishes by his own hand. And Michael O'Dwyer is sort of like, hee, 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 writing in his memoir that, luckily, I had packed my own lunch. And I sort of hit it among the dishes. They like potted meats and things that he brought from his own kitchen because he wasn't going to eat this foreign muck. So you suddenly see there's a real difference in attitude that things that are Indian are are bad and things that are British are good.
0: But you do also get the beginning of a quite distinct... Anglo-Indian cooking, which appears still at lunch in the club and so on. So you get the Madras Club invents Malagatoni soup, which is a Raj version watered down of Rasam. Rasam, yeah. And then you get the Korma. Now, the Korma starts off as something lucknavi, the Korma, I think it's, it's pronounced. And the Anglo-Indian establishment sort of waters it down and turns it into a sort of completely different dish. And there's a guy who writes a cookbook in the 1870s who calls himself a 35 years resident of India. And in his cookbook, he says that the korma without exception is one of the richest of Hindustani curries, but it is quite unsuited to European taste he says confidently, if made according to the original recipe. And he gives his own British version of this, which reduces all the ghee and the yoghurt, as well as the aromatic spices such as cloves and cardamoms. It emits cream altogether, and instead it produces a sort of more generic, well, what can only be described as a curry sauce, which is actually what it is. It is now the British, inverted commas, curry by adding coriander, ginger and peppercorns. Which were basic ingredients of this new dish, which is called curry, which is what we should now talk about.
2: Just one observation though. You know, the fact that the Brits in India are post eighteen fifty seven are so sniffy about Indian cooking and think it's just not good enough. The same cannot be said about their monarch. Queen Victoria loves a curry. Absolutely adores Indian food and you see entries in her diary.
0: Indian curries cooked every day for every
2: day. Particularly in Osborne Hats, which is her Sanctum Sanctorum, where she loves to go with her family and her inner circle. It has a huge Indian influence with the Dalbar rooms. She has her Munshi, very wonderful book that's written by our friend Shrabani Basu, is amazing and the Munshi is tasked with coming up with more and more delicious Indian recipes from his childhood to titillate Her Majesty's palate.
0: This is David Burton. He says, Queen Victoria herself employed two Indian cooks whose sole duty was to prepare the curry, which was served at lunch each day, regardless of whether she and her guests partook of it or not. And this is very interesting because it's also the period, ironically, the same period as European food is beginning now to take over British tables in India. It's the beginning of Indian restaurants in Britain. Yes, And the first one, I've got in my hands this wonderful book called The Travels of Dean Muhammad, the 18th century journey through India. And this extraordinary character called Dean Muhammad, who was originally an East India Company soldier, who comes back with his brother officer to Ireland, where rather amazingly, he then elopes with a woman called Janet Daly. And as she has been disinherited for running off with Dean Muhammad, they start the first Indian restaurant in Britain, which he opens off Portman Square, offering what he describes as hot curries and a good Hubble bubble. Here here (laughs) the gentry may enjoy the hookah with real chillum tobacco And Indian dishes in the highest perfection allowed by the greatest epicures to be unequal to any curries ever made in England. So this is, in fact, just before the mutiny of 1857. This is in the 1840s that he opens it. Mm. And he then goes on to open a second establishment, which is Britain's first hammam and massage parlor in Brighton, no less. There his clients include both King William IV and George IV. And he claims there is scarcely any disease to which the human frame is liable which may not be relieved by the use
2: of these baths. He's quite an entrepreneur. He is an entrepreneur. But, you know, so these these early Indian restaurants, as you call them, and they were popping up for as long as Indians were coming to Britain as workers. So, you know, you have the Lashkas, who were the seamen who transported goods for the East India Company.
0: Who we came across in our Yemeni episode last
2: week. They came from, you know, all over. You had Chinese Lashkas, you have Yemeni Lashkas, but you had a lot of Indian Lashkas. And they would come and they would often be stranded in Britain for months and months and waiting for a voyage home or to be paid often, just waiting a long, long time to be paid. And they would secrete upon their person, you know, sort of some would bring cumin, others would bring red chilli, others would bring Greek, and they would get together and you couldn't call these things restaurants, but they would mass cook together. So you would have what we would call, I suppose, a Dhaba in India. You would have these little establishments, mainly springing up around ports, actually, which I think you could definitely describe as Indian, you know, your early curry houses, because people would come and they would contribute money. And then, you know, more and more raw material would be bought. You also have very early accounts, maybe even preceding the Indian uprising stroke mutiny of 1857, where Brits who were coming to Britain and bringing their ayahs or servants, Indian servants, who they wanted to bring back to Britain for whatever reason. We're also importing vast amounts of key because you couldn't get that here, which is a very Indian thing, a clarified butter. So you see really interesting sort of receipts, manifest details of big barrels of key being brought back.
0: And the next posh Indian restaurant, the oldest surviving Indian restaurant, which is still there near Piccadilly, is Veera Swamis.
2: Veera been to Veera Swamis I mean, that was a hotbed for Nationalist activity. You know, Indians would go and discuss politics there a lot.
0: Interestingly, it's founded by one of my white Mughal families. And on the cover of the hardback of white Mughals, there was a picture, this very charming picture, which is in the British Library, probably by an artist called Rinaldi, though some people think it's Zoffany, of William Palmer and his Indian family. And you have this extraordinary, very formal 18th century oil of a British officer in a red coat with his two wives. So Palmer in his red coat was the British resident at the court of avad in the 1780s, 1790s, I think, mm. and he has, by his mogul wife Faiz Begum, a son called William Palmer, who becomes a famous banker in Hyderabad uh, and a very rich man, a very successful banker, and I think it's one of his children who found Viraswami.
2: Isn't that interesting? So, I mean, you have this really peculiar situation, which I'm utterly fascinated with. Is that you've got the Brits who go over to serve the Raj post 1850s, who have a deep skepticism of all things that are Indian. And so, you know, you have the high tea cucumber sandwiches with the crust cut off and fish that is served, you know, with capers and lemon and see the menus from those times and the clear soups that are in French. But here in Britain, I mean, it's not just Queen Victoria who is fascinated. Others too, because you've got the older guard who've come back from serving in India, who did eat the lavish creams and curries and things, and who still have a taste for it. So they have already brought over their chefs and their cooks, a lot of them from Surat, in fact, which we talked about in the last episode, who are still producing the food that they loved very, very much. And so a whole new generation is in Britain is being introduced to Indian food and learning to be excited by it. Whereas the Brits in India themselves sort of look down on it as if it's kind of, you know, foreign filth, which I think is fascinating.
0: And this is something that, again, reflects a wider set of attitudes. So that when Gandhi comes to London, he finds a whole world in London. He finds vegetarian restaurants. He finds a whole bunch of people interested in Indian religions and Hinduism and Buddhism. And in fact, he learns about Hinduism in London rather than just the rote learned prayers that he'd been brought up on. And he begins to take an intellectual interest in religion in London. And it's when he goes back to the colonies, in inverted commas, specifically South Africa, that he's turfed off the train and treated with the kind of straightforward racism that you see in that famous incident of Peter Maritzburg in South Africa.
2: Yeah, I mean, just two, again, two stories which tickle me a great deal. So there is one I wrote about Maharaja Dilip Singh. He was brought over here. He was a real close member of Queen Victoria's extended family tantamount to. She took him to Osborne. She spent a lot of time with him and loved him until she didn't love him. And he hated her and tried to get India back or get his kingdom, his Sikh empire back. But in the days when he was still in favour, he makes this one trip to Calcutta to bring his mother, Rani Jindan, back to London.
0: Who's an amazing, tough old bird.
2: Extremely tough old bird. And, you know, the Brits have made this calculation that she's less trouble here where we can keep an eye on her than she would be in India where she could meant rebellion in her son's name and there are accounts of her living at lancaster gate which is in a very posh part of central london and she's bought her own cooks and retinue and all the locals sort of smelling this smell of her exotic cooking and you know like Bisto kids being carried to the corner of lancaster gate where her house is on this invisible pool of exotic cooking thackeray can i just read you a bit from thackeray yeah, you know yeah. very very famous english writer was born in India he was sent home at the age of four like most Anglo-Indian children
0: courted my great-great-grandmother unsuccessfully
2: really why why didn't she fancy him what was wrong with him just as a matter of interest
0: because my great-great-grandfather was much much more handsome of course
2: okay righto anyway look so he's sent back to Britain but he's already got this sort of bedrock taste of India and he discovers this taste again for Indian curry because he's eating at his aunt's and uncle's houses who've also sort of spent time in India he's so enthusiastic he wrote a poem to curry may I read it to you please do Thackeray's poem to curry three pounds of veal my darling girl prepares and chops it nicely into squares five onion next. Prews the little minx, the biggest and best her Samuel thinks, and epping butter nearly half a pound, and stews them in a pan until they're browned. What next, my little dexterous girl, will do? She pops the meat into savoury stew with curry powder, tablespoonfuls three, and milk a pint, the richest that may be, and when the dish is stewed for half an hour, a lemon's ready juice she'll pour, then bless her. Then she gives the luscious pot a very gentle boil, and so quite hot p.s beef mutton rabbit if you wish lobsters or prawns or any kind of fish are fit to make a curry tis when done a dish for emperors to feed upon isn't that great that's thackeray
0: that's quite good but i think he sounds a bit of a creep i think my great-grandmother did well what's next my dexterous little girl
2: (laughs) could have been her (laughs) could (laughs) have been your (laughs) great-grandmother
0: Agreed I think we should probably take a break there And after the break We should go into that most divisive of subject Which is curry
2: powder Mother, stop listening now (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers Long day, late night,
0: feeling a little bored Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day No matter what kind of day you're having The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit
2: hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. welcome back so you poked the souffle just before we went into the break <laughs> <laughs>
0: Indian listeners around the globe gasping at the thought of it they said disgusting as curry powder
2: Madras powder vindaloo powder I mean honestly these things if you want to set a certain generation off, just present that on a on a shelf in your kitchen somewhere <laughs> and hear what happens. So curry powder, William, where's that come from then? Because it wasn't from them. It wasn't from early immigrants.
0: Well, you see, this is where I think you and I might fall out about this one, because I think that it is actually, like everything the British did in India, misunderstood and sort of bowdlerised and made safer. But it is basically garam masala under a different name the difference being that of course in no, your mother's kitchen no it's not <laughs> in your mother's kitchen the garam masala would have been ground freshly and would have been delicious and you certainly wouldn't have put curry powder in a jar and left it for 2 years and then come back and scattered it over your eggs or your jubilee chicken but it is i think derived from that Describe garam masala for those who...
2: Well, it's a mix of ground spices. So, you know, you'll have cumin and... Oh, I'm going to look it up before I'm going to get executed by my family.
0: Chilies, coriander, peppercorns, turmeric, fenugreek, curry leaves... Oh, and you've got it in front seed. of you. <laughs> I have. And that is also what in garam masala.
2: Yeah, but it tastes different. I'm telling you, it tastes different.
0: I mean, yeah, one, it's misunderstood and it's sort of gone through the mangler in the process of being turned into curry powder. But that's where it comes from, I yeah. think.
2: I mean, it's not a bad night. I mean, you know, I keep loving to tell you about my school days and uh, <laughs> dazzled you with my kedgeri, my offensive kedgeri story. But we also used to get served curry on a Friday if we were, you know, and everyone got very excited. And I developed a real love for the epping. Essex curry and it was really nice and I sort of went home and said, why doesn't ours taste like that? I guess if it's sugar or something in it but it was a, it was very nice, I liked it I've had a fray bentos curry in my time that was alright too. So you know, these tastes, they sort of shuttlecock to and fro, don't they?
0: And, and what the British do is not understanding that garam masala is something to be placed at the end of a cooking process, a little yes. bit lightly to put the final flavour in Little kick. They use it as the main flavouring and they think that they can curry anything so what they often do is that they curry leftovers in the Raj and they serve it the next day all covered in this stuff presume that this is satire but you never quite know with the Raj I'll read you from a letter written by Mr. Arnott of Greenwich you may curry anything he says old shoes should be even (laughs) shoes even should be delicious some old cloth or stair carpet not found fault with gloves if much worn are too rich
2: I mean bloody hell (laughs) Don't try this at home, people. But there were also really tall claims started coming in. And we're talking as early as the 1840s about the medicinal value of curry powder. In India, turmeric is given all sorts of magical properties.
0: Very good antiseptic.
2: Antiseptic, disinfectant, all of that kind of thing. It cleans you inside. But the Brits get onto this as well because you have advertising really as early as the 1840s. Edmund White, the maker of Salim's curry products, he presents curry as a health food. Even back then in the 1840s, he says that curries could save lives. He cites this really extraordinary and preposterous case of somebody called Mr. Harper of the Jerusalem Coffee House, which is a well-known haunt for East India merchants.
0: The Jerusalem Coffee House was a famous place, exactly.
2: Very famous, very, very famous place. But he's he's a very sick man, is Mr. Harper, apparently according to Edmund White, and he's tried every medicine on the market and nothing is helping him. The only thing that saves him, guess what it is? It's Edmund White's curry paste. Which brings him back to life. Again, this sort of there is taste for it in Britain. There is an exoticism about it in Britain. And there's also a mystical quality about it in Britain. So I always thought that the phrase to curry favour came from this period of time when curry was becoming very, very big in Britain. Did you think that?
0: I'd never even thought it through.
2: But you've heard you've heard the phrase. I
0: know the phrase, absolutely.
2: Okay. Well, it doesn't has nothing to do with the great curative powers of Edmund White, or anybody else's curry powder. To curry favour, which means, if you haven't come across the phrase, to seek or gain approval through flattery or servile behaviour, you can trace it back to medieval England. So clearly not the curry that we think about, because curry originally, apparently, meant to groom or prepare a horse. So to curry favour was to launch yourself into the Lord's good graces by brushing his horse beautifully and looking after it. So that was something I've only discovered in researching this podcast, that I have been wrong all these years. It had nothing to do with the influx of curry into Britain. So to curry favour, that's not from India. But the amount of spices, just to give you an idea, and again, I'll sort of look back to the 1800s, between 1820 and 1840, imports of turmeric, which we were talking about, has this you know magical, mystical quality, according to some of the salesmen here. It increased threefold. So first of all, it was some eight thousand six hundred and something pounds. It goes up to twenty-six thousand pounds by the end of the century. Non-specialist growers are stocking three types of curry powder here in Britain in these years. You know, yellow curry powder, brown curry powder, and a fiery red chili curry powder. So it's becoming really pretty ubiquitous. You're getting, by the 1850s, British cookery books that call for a spoonful of curry powder in most of their Indian dishes. It's just, it's always there. Curry powder is now a staple in your cupboard. So curry powder is everywhere. It's on on people's shelves. Queen Victoria is doing her very, very best to make people understand and appreciate the gift from her Eastern Empire even though the people who are working out in the Eastern Empire may not recognise it as such. So, you know, we've talked about the Great Exhibition. The Great Exhibition there are little curry houses within the Great Exhibition. In the Great
0: Exhibition, where our koh no was on display. Yes!
2: They sort of recreated an Indian street scene and they, they had little sort of houses like chai houses and things like that where you could sample the cuisine of these places. There was another wonderful thing I saw here. They had like snake charmers and also they had Indian performers. The problem was and this is the great exhibition in Earls Court 1895 and 1896. The cobras kept dying of cold. <laughs> so like <laughs> <laughs> great detail. <laughs> wake up. Wake up cobra kick the cobra. But these sort of Anglo-Indian curry houses, people got their sort of first taste of it. And around the exhibition as well, you had one Indian waiter who worked in the Ceylon Tea House at Liverpool's Royal Jubilee exhibition in 1887 and Glasgow's exhibition the following year. He published a, a cookery book called Curries and How to Make Them in England. So you've actually got Indian writers as well as, you know, British writers all clamouring over, let me show you how to make a curry. Isn't that great?
0: I love that. I didn't know that at all. And 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 then by the time that the empire begins to run down, you have the beginning of the conquest of British cooking by Indian cooking and the long march towards chicken tikka masala becoming the national dish of Britain, according to Robin Cook and others.
2: Oh, he said that in 2001, didn't he? I mean, we should remember when Robin Cook said that. 2001, he announced that chicken tikka masala was the great national dish. It's such a hotly contested statement. It,
0: it wasn't just for that reason, but he became the most hated British politician in India at the time, largely because of his views on Kashmir. But the, I think you could mark the beginning of the sort of rise of Indian cooking towards colonising Britain the counter-colonization of British life by Curry with the coronation in 1953 and the invention as the official dish for the coronation of Coronation Chicken, which is known in France, apparently, as Poulet reine Elizabeth.
2: I really like Coronation Chicken. I think it's delicious. I think it's absolutely lush. I mean, for those people who neither live in Britain... Well, no, it's just Britain. You wouldn't get this in India, I don't think, unless at the Gymkhana's or the clubs. Coronation Chicken is... How would you describe it?
0: I've got the recipe in front of me. It is boneless chicken, seasoned with parsley, which is a very British rather than Indian seasoning, thyme, bay leaf... Cumin, turmeric, ginger, peppercorns, mixed with cream or mayonnaise, some dried apricots or sultanas, which is exactly what the Brits used to put in their curries because they couldn't get tamarind. And they used to substitute dried apricots in this country when they served it in British gentlemen's clubs and so on.
2: Yeah. Very inventive. It would work. Yeah.
0: Some variations include cinnamon. And it's served cold and eaten as a salad with rice, peas and pimentos, or used as a filling for sandwiches. And we know who created it. It was the invention of no lesser figure than Constance Spry, the English food writer and flower ranger, along with Rosemary Hume. And it was invented specifically for the coronation of Queen Elizabeth in 1953.
2: I have to say, they did a very good thing there. I and mean, coronation chicken is my favourite sandwich. I think it's a very good invention. I went
0: to the British High Commission at this coronation last year for King Charles, and they had a much less good, rather disgusting vol-au-vent, which was meant to be the official dish.
2: You're not being invited back! You're not coming back, mate. <laughs> they also serve the coronation chicken
0: for the last coronation, which is much better.
2: Just just looking at India, though, now, because I, I was in India just over Christmas. And my lovely, lovely cousin. We were like wild animals. Like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> let's go eat everything all at once. Like Pac-Man. Nam, 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 sort of like moving through different parts of India. And he took us to a very shishi restaurant in Mumbai. It was kind of so chefy, but also Indian. So you would have like a rasmalai in a chocolate dome, which you would prick and then it would all fall. All apart like an opening petal. I mean, it was just so redonkulous. You would have loved this. It was just also very OTT marvellous. But I noticed he wasn't eating Neither is was his wife. And we were, you know, me and the kids and my husband, bouncing on it like ravenous hyenas. I said, why aren't you eating? He said, oh, we don't tend to eat this late. It was 7.30 in the evening. And so I said, well, huh? And among <laughs> a certain sort of, you know, modern and educated kind of generation, you do not eat. In India at the moment, past four o'clock.
0: That's a diet thing.
2: It's a health thing.
0: Because traditionally, in Ind- I mean, famously in Delhi, no one at a, at a smart dinner party, even today.
2: No one arrives till 11. No one,
0: well, no one arrives until about nine and you don't even have a hope of seeing your dinner till 11.
2: You're not kidding. So, there are sort of like different areas. So, you know, there really is so a hipster community are, are very health conscious in Mumbai. And they do this thing of like, no, you have to go without food for a certain amount of time. But that is, that's
0: a very small minority of hipsters, you say.
2: I did almost die in Delhi, though. Honestly, you guys eat so late, it's ridiculous. I don't know how you sleep.
0: What I love about Delhi dinner parties is, is that they don't serve the main dishes until 11, but they regard kebabs as snacks. So, <laughs> kebabs are being handed around yeah. from eight o'clock or nine o'clock. Which I much prefer anyway, so I'm very happy with that. But we have now to do the single greatest question in the history of Anglo- Anglo-Indian cooking.
2: Strapping on my hard hat right now.
0: We're going to get uh, a lot of angry letters about this. But yep. who invented Anita Chicken Tikka Masala?
2: No, it's butter chicken. That's the real. That's the one that's kicked off, isn't it?
0: Well, there's both of them. They're both highly disputed.
2: I read the chicken tikka masala was claimed by some Brit who poured tomato soup over a chicken. I mean, is that right?
0: And not just, not some Brit. We know the name of this guy, rather like a coronation chicken. It has an originator, and he's Ali Ahmed Aslam of the Glasgow's celebrated Shish Mahal restaurant. And the story is that in the 1950s, early 60s, he had a stomach ulcer and was on a liquid-based diet, and he added some of his tomato soup and a few spices to help liven up dry meal. And the customer who he gave it to said he loved it so much that he kept returning time after time with his mates just to eat it. And this was a variant on that story, which is, yes, that some Brits complained that the kebabs were too dry and they wanted it wetter.
2: So they just poured some tomato soup over it. (laughs) I mean, I like a chicken tikka masala. I like it.
0: And we have to say that this very important bit of history reached as far as Parliament, when in 2009, Anna Sawa, now a leader of the Scottish Labour Party, put forth an early day motion in the House of Commons requesting that Parliament legally recognise Glasgow as the home of chicken tikka masala. But sadly, it failed.
2: Right, okay. There's a butter chicken war going on in India. There is. And it's getting feisty over there. So who are the main contenders?
0: I know the Delhi claim. You presumably know a Punjabi one.
2: No, I don't know Punjabi one. I think it's two restaurateurs who say that they originated it.
0: So I've always been told for 20 or 30 years that the originator of Butter Chicken is a restaurant that's still open in Dariagunj in the old city of Delhi near the German masjid called the Moti Mahal Deluxe.
2: Yeah, that's one of them.
0: Certainly when I first came to Delhi... People always used to say, oh, you must go to the Moti Mahal Deluxe because it's the place where butter chicken was invented.
2: I didn't realise there was a competitor. Well, there is. And it's now so bitter, and this is hot off the press because this just happened a week or so ago. It is going to court. No, who's the rival claimant? Delhi High Court, it's been filed already. So Moti Mahal, your one, founded in 1947.
0: With refugees from partition. And then there's another whole story of whether this was a dish originally native to Peshawar or whether it was Punjabi which is a separate sub-dispute in this.
2: So the lawsuit was brought by the family of a, a man called Kundanlal Gujral, who is one of the original restaurant's founders. And he claims that he, Gujral, created the curry and he sued a rival chain called Darya Ganj of falsely taking credit for it. And the Gujral family, do you know how much they're seeking? How much? It's quite a lot in rupees, I'm guessing, but 188,908 Pounds in damages <laughs> because Daria Gunj is saying that they invented not just butter chicken, but dal makhni as well.
0: Dal makhni is again another of these dishes that apparently was invented during partition. And it was one of those. So, for those that don't know, dal makhni is the dark dal full of ghee, very, very rich. Too rich for my taste.
2: Oh, it's so good. <laughs> it's so <laughs> Very good. fattening. Very fattening. It cooks for hours and you've got this swirl of white key on top of it. It's so buttery and so bad. <laughs> it's so delicious.
0: And I think it's in Yasmin Khan's book on partition that there was some deprivation of some sort during partition and they had to make their dal with a different substance. So that's how Urad dal began.
2: Urad dal, right. Okay. I'm just looking at some newspaper copy of Murti Mahal, which is this early restaurant which is also laying claim to the invention of butter chicken. The New York Times wrote of Murti Mahal in 1984 because it used to have lots of, I should say, very important people used to come and eat there, including Nehru was a frequent
0: flyer. At its time, people used to go up to Old Delhi and everyone would go to the Murti Mahal Ducks. Now, of course, everyone goes down to South Delhi, the kind of southward drift of Delhi restauranting. I remember when I was first here in the 80s, going up to Old Delhi to eat.
2: What do, you, do you want to know what the New York Times wrote about Mr Gujarat? who's part of this lawsuit. They described him as a portly, florid man with a splendid moustache and credited him for both the butter chicken recipe and the restaurant's booming success.
0: Well, I suspect that this will be something that will exercise our listeners and we will receive a great number of complaints and letters about this. Tell us what you think. Who originated butter chicken? Who invented chicken tikka masala? These are some of the great culinary issues of our day.
2: I'm really hungry now and I can't do this anymore. Can, can we stop?
0: It's to the time my time. <laughs> I know exactly what I've got. I've got a very good peshwari chicken dish cooking and I can smell it even as as I sit here I've
2: got to make something myself because I'm here but everyone else is out of work or school but I'll find something anyway listen enough from us thank you very much for listening this is it
0: I'm sorry if we have <laughs> made your tummies rumble or...
2: I can't think straight anymore I've got to eat something it is goodbye from me Anita Arnon and
0: goodbye from me from a very hungry William de Rumpel.